0: So Welcome everybody. Uh, We're about uh, halfway through the spring session for the Vancouver Institute of Social Research and uh, we're very excited to have such a uh, lively group of people here on such a uh, beach worthy day. Uh, Just a few housekeeping matters. Uh, The bathroom is in the back and feel free to just get up and go anytime you have to go and uh, there's also a, a big tank of water there so help yourselves to that as well. Um, <clears throat> uh, just a, uh, kind of casual, gentle reminder that, uh, spontaneous community is always a, a, fragile, precarious thing, so please be considerate of your neighbors today and, uh, considerate of, uh, Zoe, who's been kind enough to, uh, give this lecture today. Um, in any event, uh... When we, uh, that is said, when Am and I first started uh, concocting this free school idea uh, in the summer of 2012, uh, we uh, were soliciting suggestions from the community about uh, who appropriate sort of professors and graduate students and curators might be to participate, and uh, one of the first names that came up was uh, Zoe Druick. Uh, many of whose students um, assertively suggested that uh, she'd be perfect for an event such as this one. And so um, I was very happy when I cold called her several months back. Um, she said pretty immediately that, she, that she'd do it. And uh, she was eager to talk about the basic coordinates of a project like this and what would be expected of her. And uh, she was very diligent about organizing it uh, quite meticulously. And so um, I've long been looking forward uh, to this particular session of the Vancouver Institute of Social Research, and um, I'd like you to help me welcome uh, Zoe Druick.
1: Well, thanks very much, Dan, and to the um, Institute for Social Research that I was about to call the Summer School, because that's how I'm feeling right now. Um, it's a real pleasure to to be here tonight to present this work and um, this work is part of a a larger paper that is uh, forthcoming in Camera Obscura I'm going to try to condense but there may be things that seem uh, left out or elided that I'm happy to address afterwards so hopefully we'll have uh, I think this shouldn't go longer than about 40 minutes and then hopefully we'll have plenty of time for for discussion so um, I'll start by just acknowledging that documentary is a very slippery term, it's, it's famously hard to pin down and, and one always approaches its definition with a healthy dose of trepidation. But however it may be defined, one of the long-standing vectors of documentary practice has been the search for techniques for engaging the public with sounds and images of itself, in effect common everyday experience. In particular, makers of documentaries and other realist forms have labored to find textual ways to transform ordinary people's stories into narratives that might bring forth what Jane Jane Gaines calls political mimesis or an affinity with the struggles and experiences of those depicted on screen. From Zygivertov and Elizaveta Spilova's use of the fragments of modern life to recalibrate the audience's sensorium, and the Griersonian filmmaking tradition's use of typicality and composites, to neorealism, slight narratives of ordinary struggles, and Frederick Wiseman's Mosaic Structures of Reality Fictions, the project of comprehending the everyday has been tied in part to the the formal and very basic problem of actually representing it. As a movement attuned to the challenges this posed from the outset, feminist documentary and video work has traditionally been preoccupied with both giving voice to the unheard and placing an emphasis on media making as a collaborative process for the development of political consciousness. American artist Natalie Bookchin's digital video documentaries, pieces such as Mass Ornament of 2009, the Testament series 2009 also, and now he's out in public and everyone can see 2012, are large screen immersive gallery installations made up of montages featuring multiple frames and multiple screens sometimes showing short snippets of solo dance and first person speech gleaned from YouTube. They use the abundance of individual expression that occurs online to make visible and audible the simultaneous aloneness and togetherness of, as she puts it, private domestic spaces that have been temporarily transformed into public theaters. Although in some ways Book Chin's approach is consonant with the appropriation aesthetic of found footage filmmaking, its commitment to engaging with experiences of everyday life and finding new forms of filmic collaboration also pushes the feminist or committed documentary project forward in significant ways. Indeed, where found footage approaches, according to Paul Arthur, often focus on the micro-political critique of historical exclusion or distortion enacted by disenfranchised groups on the terrain of dominant representation, Bookchin, by contrast, examines the self-representations made by these very same constituencies. So Bookchin began making these pieces in the year following the financial crisis of 2008, The same moment, in fact, when vlogs emerged as a prominent cultural form. So as a result, her work may be said to document the social relations that digital platforms and social media enabled at a particular historical moment. In addition, the pieces utilize the formal capacities of immersive media, particularly sound, to recalibrate the kinds of political engagement usually pursued through documentary. The installation of these works enhances the experience of the importance Bookchin grants to ephemeral voices. In a darkened gallery setting, faces and bodies appear large, and the sounds they create envelop the listener. The pieces run on short loops, ranging from a little over one to 17 minutes, enabling the viewer to pay attention in different ways. The loop form manifests repetition But it also signifies unfinalizability as the pieces, like the experience of digital media itself, refuse to give the audience the structure of clear beginnings and firm endings. Just as the horizontal lines of images evoke repetition, they are also reminiscent of the experience of online browsing and YouTube's own interface in which one video leads inexorably to another in an algorithmically determined chain. The pieces are all available in single screen, non-looped versions on Vimeo. And I think some of you have had a chance to look at them, um, which provokes an altogether different experience. In this um, solo context, the viewer is called on to reflect on his or her own digital practices, navigating across the internet in an experience that is at once connective and isolating. And I'll just start with a clip just to, for those who haven't had a chance to look at them yet. So in my presentation this evening, I want to argue that Bookchin attends to these stories in ways that model both the possibility and the impossibility of the emergence of political collectivity online. Bookchin uses the fragments of meaning she finds in the vlogs, as well as in the ephemeral form of the videos themselves, to make viewers aware of the ambivalences of experience in times of economic instability and social change documentary becomes a form of intersubjective recognition by Bookchin and and by extension by us, her audience, that transcends the mere representation of multiplicity. Her attention to these pieces of ephemeral, largely unwatched video, and her exploration of the ambivalences they contain, exemplify what I want to call a politics of listening. In particular, Bookchin's use of found sound as an organizational principle invites a consideration of the sonic composition of polyvocal and polyrhythmic digital fragments. Feminist scholars of rhetoric have contributed fascinating work on the importance of listening in both political and everyday contexts that examines the interrelation of sense perception and political subjectivity. Such work seems well-suited to thinking about documentary practice, and although I won't go into it here, it has not yet made its way into the study of documentary. For instance, in her book, Listening Publics*, Kate Lacey argues that the capacity of audiences to listen within mediated publics is just as important as their ability to speak. Listening in this respect is a gift of attentiveness, but it might also be a political modality. One of the things listening can reveal, for instance, are moments of misunderstanding and miscommunication that highlight the problematics of mediation. Similarly, one may attempt to listen for what uh, another um, rhetorician named um, Krista Ratcliffe calls, uh, calls the unconscious presences, absences, and unknowns through which power structures our lives. Indeed, for feminist scholars like Ratcliffe, eavesdropping or positioning oneself on the edge of one's knowing might be a way to break down the the assumptions that structure our knowledge and take one out of oneself to overhear and learn from others. As with any project that assembles granular media, mediated listening often involves the organization of fragments, a process typically described using the the metaphor of orchestration. However, with its attendant associations of classical form, and its focus on the harmonic resolution of differences, orchestration is hardly a neutral term. Notably, counterpoint and polyvocality and not orchestration are at the root of feminist discussions of listening, and both present better metaphors for thinking about the unresolvable multiplicity present in social discourse. In this regard, feminist interests dovetail well with Mikhail Bakhtin's dialogic principle. As Bakhtin notes, the centripetal forces of the life of language embodied in a unitary language operate in the midst of heteroglossia. What counts as political speech and political theory is often strictly limited to voices engaged in rational debate. 19th century political theorist Benedetto Croce characterizes rhetor- rhetoric as an ornament on the more serious matter of public deliberation. Like art, rhetoric was deemed inappropriate to the masculine public sphere, except as distraction and entertainment. Now, feminist scholars have challenged Croce's distinction, pointing out that embodiment is one of the repressed features of rational deliberation. The body is the source of aesthetic experience, and it is therefore impossible to divorce the political from this organic and socially organized physicality. Political theorist Nancy Love argues that deliberative Democrats tend to equate voice with speech and speech with argument. This emphasis on argument tends to exclude the voices of people from identity groups deemed overly emotional, spiritual, or material, such as women, children, the religious, and the racialized. It also sidelines rhetoric and storytelling, as what Iris Marion Young calls mere supplements to rational argument. By contrast, Bookchin emphasizes polyvocality and the form of the chorus as structures for the organization of diverse but related utterances. In her reliance on musical and theatrical tropes, she subverts the presumed authority of rational speech in the public sphere. Similarly, her anachronistic appeal to a social genre closely associated with ancient Greek democracy, the chorus, is resonant with political possibilities. So Bookchin's work is comprised of hundreds of video clips found on YouTube and organized into serialized and database form. So it definitely shares some attributes with database documentaries, which tend to use online platforms and are composed of digital media. Now, databases are computerized systems for organizing information. And for obvious reasons, database aesthetics have become increasingly important for a culture immersed in digital media its very reason for being, namely managing large large amounts of data, means that the database seems to privilege multiplicity over singularity, simultaneity over hierarchy, and collection over selection. But database documentaries and other artworks, such as Dina Kelberman's I Am Google, um, that use databases often find ways to balance these opposing tendencies. Database imagery recapitulates serial imagery's emphasis on horizontality and multiplicity. Moreover, databases like serial imagery are often engaged in an archival project of equivalency. So, database aesthetics are both part of a long cultural history of information management and emblematic of the distracted concentration of our current media habits. We tend to be aware all the time of the excess of data beyond that which, with, with which we are currently engaged. And this is that, the basis of that internet produced fear of missing out and also of that sense of constant information overload. Indeed, there can be an effect of the sublime in database works that expose the unfathomable scale of digital culture such as Peter Ashton's 10,000 selfies. Now, while a strong current in what Tom Waugh calls the committed documentary has been concerned with representing the unseen and the unheard, database documentary documentary arguably takes this imperative to a whole new scale. Numerous projects such as Katarina Cizek's High Rise Project or Sharon Daniel's Public Secrets use what might be termed an aesthetic of the multitude. CZEC's project to document the experience of living in tower blocks, which is sort of the vernacular of expedient urbanization all around the world, has numerous large-scale components that allow the visualization of residential towers around the globe through both Google Maps and uploaded photographs and other kinds of data. These interactive database works provide the user with an interface through which he or she can select individual stories through audio recordings, videos, or transcriptions, and sometimes upload his or her own contributions. In Public Secrets, for instance, um, Sharon Daniels includes 500 stories of women incarcerated in the California state prison system by which, according to her, the scale and scope of injustice is forcefully revealed. So rather than choose a single person who embodies and discloses the experience of injustice in public institutions or even a handful of people, um, directors mobilizing this kind of aesthetic are including as many voices as possible. Another aggregative model involves collecting and organizing existing expression at the level of anonymous data. So massive aggregation is done most clearly in in early real-time interactive work such as Mark Hansen and Ben Rubin's Listening Post and Jonathan Harris and Sepp Kamvar's We Feel Fine in which algorithms create patterns of visibility among live feeds from the Internet. (coughs) Um, We Feel Fine was essentially a data visualization project project which mobilized a data collection engine that automatically scoured the internet every 10 minutes, harvesting the expression of human feelings. Um, I think We Feel Fine is more or less defunct now. Another approach initiated by YouTube itself was to solicit and organize video uploaded by users into a more or less conventional narrative. The conceit of the film Life in a Day by Kevin McDonald is to cover a representative sample of everything that takes place um, in one 24-hour period. The footage was gathered from 4,500 hours of video uploaded to YouTube in response to a series of questions that they posed in 2010. And the film uses the diurnal structure established by the City Symphony film of the 1920s, taking place over 24 hours from dawn to dawn, but expanded to a global scale. Yet another strategy to manage the um, enormous amount of data um, is to compile video clips according to scripts and scores. And this is what uh, Perry Bard has done with Man with a Movie Camera Global Remake. And it's quite different from Life in a Day in that it continues to grow as people continue to add to it. And it uses Man with a Movie Camera as its template. So I evoke all of this work because I'm trying to establish that Bookshin's project is different in important ways from all of these other approaches to the database form. First of all she's gleaning her material from video that has been voluntarily posted online and then she goes ahead and makes her her finished pieces available uh, either through Vimeo or YouTube. But she has not created an algorithm or used software to organize her material. Her pieces are not live and constantly updating. She does not employ a pre-existing script with which to match her images, nor does she invite users to upload their own content. Rather, what she's doing is collecting and sifting this mass of data according to what she hears, um, exposing what she finds to be shared shared elements of personal struggle, trauma, or hardship. Her projects thus highlight the work of listening and constituting communities of feeling, as electronic eavesdropping is organized into a meaningful polyphony. Okay, so now I'm gonna turn to some more examples from her work. In the piece Mass Ornament, Bookchin evokes a feminist reading of Siegfried Krakauer, investigating the way that the technologically mediated body in movement, that of the dancer, appears to us today. Unlike the mechanized female chorus lines that Krakauer Krakauer wrote about in the 1920s, such as the Tiller Girls, today's dancers are not visible as aesthetic embodiments of the machinery of capitalism. However, technology is just as essential to this form of expression. Where the rationalized bodies of the Tiller Girls and their ilk express the operation of the machine as a mirror of sorts to the watching masses, Um, themselves arranged, in his words, by the stands in tier upon ordered tier. Bookchin's dancers are isolated in their rooms, contributing, as are the viewers, if you're viewing at home, to the functioning of what Jody Dean calls communicative capitalism, surfing, clicking, liking, and commenting. In other words, the pieces allow us to imagine the isomorphism of digital mediation at different registers of life, from work to socializing and entertainment, from the private to the public. And this corresponds with Bookchin's analysis of the post Fordist labor that mass ornament illustrates. This is a quote from her. Just as rows of spectators in the 1920s and 30s sat in movie theaters and stadiums watching rows of bodies moving in formation, With YouTube videos, single viewers sit alone in front of computer screens watching individual dancers voluntarily moving in formation alone in their rooms. As the Tiller Girls dance embodied characteristics of Fordism and Taylorism, the YouTube dance, with its emphasis on the individual, the home, and individuated and internalized production, embodies key characteristics of our economic situation of post-Fordism, unquote. So the analyses that both Krakauer and Bookchin perform on these cultural expressions afford a response to a capitalist totality that is incomprehensible when considered in a fragmented state. For Krakauer, the mass ornament was a manifestation of the mass of people as an object for their own consumption. In this, Krakauer was less hopeful than Joel Dinnerstein, who reads the Jazz Age as the African-American-led response to modernity where Krakauer finds the chorus lines of sexless bodies in bathing suits epitomize the mass ornament. Dinnerstein diagnoses the ability of big band jazz of the 1920s and 30s and the dancing that went with it to, quote, what he calls swing the machine, an innovative response to the dehumanization of the modern machine age. Both Krakauer and Dinnerstein consider human bodies involved in circuits of mimesis with their machines. And in so doing, they anticipate Miriam Hansen's theory of vernacular modernism, as both diagnose the cultural production and participation of a population undergoing the deeply unsettling experience of rapid modernization. By highlighting the embodied experience of modernity, the concept of vernacular modernism troubles the rigid separation of politics and aesthetics, the public and the private, as well as high and low art. Krakauer and Dinnerstein also draw attention to the desire created by the gendered and racialized bodies associated with the machine, formations that evocatively express many cultural contradictions. Now, the dancers in Mass Ornament are all atomized, alone in their rooms, with their video camera and computer, Uh, Many of the maneuvers they undertake suggest the bravado of the cinema of attractions combined with the narcissism of the video mirror. But in organizing their bodies in horizontal lines that echo the Tiller Girls' chorus line, Bookchin reveals synchronicity. They are all performing the steps of Beyonce's 2008 music video for her song Single Ladies. Put a ring on it. As a political text, the music video for Single Ladies is extremely confounding. It features Beyoncé and two other black female dancers tightly framed in a white cube as they demonstrate remarkable and synchronized physical prowess. Beyoncé is cybernetic, sporting a bionic-looking left hand, presumably in place of an engagement ring. Yet the song's lyrics of apparent female strength are filtered through a retrograde, retrograde narrative of failed matrimony, wherein the agency is attributed to the man, the suitor, and the woman is reduced to a body. If you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna show you a clip um, from this, but not the whole of mass Ornament. So you have to imagine that in the gallery installation version, there's screens on all sides, and so the images are stretched around, and also that it would be on a loop, so then it would start again. <clears throat> so when choosing to showcase the widespread popularity of the virtuosic dance moves of Beyoncé's video, though separated from the original song, Bookchin explores a part of mass culture usually derided for its high-production popular dance music and anti-feminist sentiment. But unpredictably, Bookshin finds in these gyrating bodies the expression of a kind of embodied politics as teenagers and young adults of both genders try performing this particular script with all its contradictions and by broadcasting themselves bring a little swing to the machine. What moves these what moves these individuals to capture themselves awkwardly dancing and then to make the footage available on YouTube? speaks to the vlog form, the fantasy of what Jody Dean calls exposure without exposure. Their mimetic relationship to the Beyonce video is received in turn by Bookchin, who makes their solos into chorus lines and demonstrates a new way to listen and to provide an answer to the utterances of others. Rather than despair about the lack of political communication online, Bookchin unearths the potential, for example, for challenges to gendered norms of both moving and looking. In so doing, she illustrates Nancy Love and Mark Mattern's observation that the sites of political participation are expanded by the arts and popular culture, especially for those who enjoy little, if any, access to institutionalized politics, in this case, youth. The Testament series that followed Mass Ornament continues to investigate the hybrid private-public spaces in which political expression takes form online and the corresponding types of listening appropriate to this new context. Bookchin synchronizes what April Durham calls percussive voicings of self on the soundtrack while simultaneously highlighting the multitude through the mosaic or serial imagery of the database. The material she uses reveals the peculiar, sometimes awkward, blend of public and private found in the genre of vlogging. My Meds, the shortest of this series at just over one minute, is arguably also the most powerful, and I'll just show you this one because it's just over a minute, we can watch the whole thing. So Bookchin organizes the speakers in these multiple horizontal lines. And often when one person is speaking, you can see the other's lips moving silently in their slightly dimmed frames. So in this way, although the piece invites listening to points of convergence among the assembled chorus, Bookchin uses visuals to remind the listener about the other parts of the story that are always not being heard. This is the reservoir of the database. These solitary, unhappy testimonies joined together in a chorus evoke the insight of feminist documentary and other pedagogies that seek to link experiences of the oppressed through consciousness raising. There are potentially shared structural reasons for unhappiness, and the pharmaceutical industry that that has displaced other forms of care in many healthcare schemes preys on the individuation of psychic torment. Drugs used to treat social ills are the perfect encapsulation of commodification, producing markets for the potentially insoluble effective responses to social and political factors beyond any individual's control. Through the strategy of vertical or paradigmatic repetition, Bookchin powerfully presents these stories as at once individual and collective. She uses what Roland Barthes once called the grain of the voice, along with the telling emotional pauses that algorithmic pieces like we feel fine eliminate to compose a shared story that simultaneously maintains differences at the level of its form. In database aesthetics, database and narrative hover closely together, a trait that Bookchin's work well illustrates. She's able to animate the database or the paradigm of narrative elements into a syntam resonant with multiplicity. While arguably all audiovisual production begins with the assembly of elements from a database of collected or archival choices, in the Testament series, Bookchin keeps her database constantly close to the surface, if not perpetually in view. And the paradigm of voices becomes a horizon against which individuals are picked out as close ups, usually through the fading away of other faces and voices, while the dominant motif, Maybe serialization, the organizing principle of Bookshin's work is resolutely sonic. Her interest in the synchronization of found stories differentiates Bookshin's work from received practices of found footage filmmaking, which tend to focus on what Jamie Barron calls intentional disparity. Another piece in the Testament series, I Am Not, explores an arena of private life that is subject to extensive social attention and much miscommunication. In this piece, Bookchin has collected clusters of expression that people have posted online regarding their sexuality, a seemingly incomprehensible way to communicate personal information to an unknown public. When numerous people declare that they are not gay, they seem to be trying to clear their name in some sort of public way. Images of other people emerge erratically around the frame as opposed to the straight rows of my meds, emphatically insisting on clarifying their sexuality. Their comments are not synchronized, but they are, they are all clearly responding to the same set of social discourses. so Michael Warner notes that traditionally being in public required the repression of anything deemed private. By this standard, particularized views and the gendered body always seem like matter out of place in the disinterested, abstract, universal public. Yet particularized views and the gendered body are the very stuff of communication of this kind, where intimately shot video and full disclosure are the norm. In this regard, vlogging about queerness evokes the archive of feelings that Anne Svedovitch so deftly describes. Bookchin investigates the status of these videos as archives dedicated to feelings rather than rational discourse. They are records of how people find spaces for their individual emotional work. At the same time, this part of people's lives is so highly policed and monitored that their own feelings are virtually public tangled up with the words and judgments of many other people. The kind of listening, gleaning, and organizing that Bookchin undertakes in I Am Not establishes her work as what Bakhtin calls a contact zone for a variety of socially circulating discourses, an approach that significantly challenges the location of political speech. As in so much of the Testament series, the texture of each person's life comes through by means of a combination of performance, cues picked up from their surroundings, the grain and rhythm of their voices, and the differences from, as well as the similarities to, those they speak with and against. Bookchin's attention to emotion, work, domestic space, and the regulation of the self in the new private public spaces of the vlog contributes to a feminist analysis of and reflection on the normative public sphere. Whereas social documentaries of early, earlier periods relied on representational spaces, such as the street, the state institution, the protest, or the political meeting, Bookchin's work explores the chronotope of the hybrid public-private spaces of the internet itself. Not only do the pieces challenge the kind of speech that is seemingly appropriate for the public sphere, Especially in their gallery installation, they also manifest a form that incorporates the supposedly autonomous viewing subject into a larger affective collectivity, uh, collectivity similar to the way music does. Not unlike the chorus invented in 5th century Athenian theatre as a mirror to represent the people to themselves, Bookchin's pieces highlight multiplicity and trans-subjectivity and therefore express a utopian vision quite different from the individualism extolled by liberalism. In a wonderful phrase, scholar Inka Mulderbach describes Krakauer's method in The Salaried Masses, which is his 1930 study of unemployed workers. Um, And it's a book largely composed of snippets of interviews, not unlike her work. Um, So Mulderbach writes that Krakauer attends to, quote, the fugitive and imperceptible phenomena... That most stubbornly resist interpretation, that fall through the mesh of theoretical systems and elude conceptual generalization. And these are what Krakauer refers to as the small effects that derive from the big causes, a succinct way of expressing the simultaneous importance and insignificance of the everyday. Bookchin has pursued a similar project in the Testament series merging it with the self-expression that conveys to an unknown audience a desire to be heard. The small effects are profound for the individuals involved, yet as the big causes are invisible, their existence must be evoked through abstraction, historicization, and interpretation, however imperfect those uh, processes may be. Combining the individual stories into what Barron insightfully calls found collectivity, allows for them to be heard on a more fitting scale. So just a few words of conclusion. In his comments on the salaried masses, Walter Benjamin characterizes Krakauer as a rag picker at daybreak, lancing with his stick, scraps of language, tatters of speech. This well-worn image of cultural gleaning is one also used to great effect in Agnes Varda's film, The Gleaners and I. Like Krakauer and Varda, Bookchin shows herself to be a linguistic rag picker and digital gleaner as well. Not relying on automatic listening, she has sifted through the online cacophony to find and really attend to the little heard voices ruminating on what life has thrown their way, as well as the sounds and improvisations of isolated dancers. As Bookchin puts it, she draws on the stuff that at first glance might be dismissed as throwaway junk consisting of banal chatter, and trivial displays of mass media mimicry. The junk or waste she recuperates through her her craft is not unlike what Tina Kendall calls a byproduct of human attention and affection. It is what we designate as unworthy of our concern or feeling. Through her careful gleaning of the YouTube database, Natalie Bookchin demonstrates a new purpose and methodology for documentary in a digital age. In grappling with the inherited form of the committed documentary, Bookchin simultaneously challenges what passes for political speech and mobilizes the chorus, a political art form from a much earlier time, a formative period in, in democracy. Both ordinary voices, diversely embodied and musical forms are usually excluded from the normative discourse of the public sphere. Bookchin carefully gleans among what many on the left would consider to be the waste products of communicative capitalism, the false agency of vlogging, uh, flimsy semblances of interactivity or false participation that ultimately produce surplus value for digital capitalism. But by actually listening to what she finds there, she's able to highlight, I think, the potential for political expression that currently exists in, in this embryonic atomized form. In her composed choruses about the everyday struggles and traumas that have been sidelined in the attention economy, Bookchin is able to comment on the subjectivities formed in neoliberal times in and through the spaces, technologies, and genres available to us. Bookchin highlights the internet's false promises to provide either individual liberation or collective organization demonstrating just how clearly YouTube operates as a site that replays in performance mode the values and logic of neoliberalism, to use Nick Coldry's formation. Yet, as I've tried to show, database documentaries like Bookchin's that rely on distributed authorship for their fragments and snippets are in an excellent position to demonstrate the dialogic tensions involved in this popular form of expression. Bookchin pays careful attention to how people engage the scripts and choreographies of mainstream culture to comprehend their own experiences. Although she finds evidence of the fissures and fault lines in the cohesion of dominant narratives, she also highlights the power of both language and technology to contain political potential. Whether or not the alienation, sadness, and dispossession we witness will be able to become a political politically mobilizing force, Bookchin offers an antidote to the failures of communicative capitalism, at least in her own practice. Begin by eavesdropping, emphasize polyphony, and then scale up. Thank you very much. I'd be really interested to hear anyone's thoughts and reflections on this work or um, or any anything that I've discussed Um, I think there are many ways of p- potentially gleaning, but I think listening has been um, maybe an overlooked sense, um, and it is, it's one that tends to be less objectifying than vision, and also h- lower, I guess, on the hierarchy of senses. So it's much more a sense of connection than of atomization or distance, um, which is not necessarily to say that it's always, you know, that's always better. But it's just to say that so many of um, so many of the paradigms of cultural studies and cultural theory have emphasized vision exclusively, and I think if we if we complicate that and start thinking about listening, um, it allows us, for example, I think to to look at what uh, the work is that's going on here, which is um, the gaze is set by the people who are involved, and they and and it's it's in a sense a cultural form that form of sitting at the, the desk computer. That's a gaze that has been established by the technology and by the relationship to the technology. But I find it's the listening that creates the organization of the clips that create that is where we see the intervention into what is otherwise a fairly atomizing cultural form. So I just think it has... Um, it seems to have a lot of potential as a way of thinking about um, non-objectivizing... Social relationships, I guess. Yeah. But I'd be interested I know there's some listening scholars in the audience I'd be interested to hear from. Yeah. Um in, in terms of the distinction
2: you just made, um is reading closer to listening Because um a lot a lot of text material that can be made of this type too, that's the HP archive. Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: I mean, I'd have to think more about it. I think that's a really good point. I think there are, I mean, again, I think if we think about uh, the paradigm of gleaning, I think there are many ways to glean, and, and yeah, I wouldn't want to say that one sense is, is inherently uh, more effective. So I think that certainly there are ways of reading, and they maybe there are non-instrumental ways that would be very similar to this notion of listening, and obviously there are instrumental ways of listening. So it's not to essentialize either one, but just as a way of complicating... I think the relationship that we have currently with those senses. I yeah.
0: was yeah. uh, really uh, compelled and interested in your uh, characterization of these configurations as choral. Uh, is that yours or is that her?
1: No, she describes them as choruses. And she also evokes it through her evocation of Krakow or through ti- her title as the Mass Ornament," which is a theory around bodies put into formations of modern choruses. So she's, But she really is interested in this idea of this early Athenian theatrical chorus where there's a collective subject who's constantly warning the characters, right, uh, of what's really going on. So, so she is evoking that as a kind of counterpoint to the kind of choruses that um, of the mechanized bodies. Yeah. shocking to discover that you know all of our most intimately held ideas and feelings might actually be shared in collective, right? Mm-hmm. And it, That's what's so incredible, especially in the laid off piece, is that there is such a shared narrative that there's so much simultaneous speaking in that piece, which is a little bit different from the other pieces. Um, but even in my meds, there is a narrative, and, and actually they are fairly American kinds of narratives of hope, um, laid off as well. They go through the betrayal of losing mm-hmm. the job, and then it's right into hope like it's a new day and I'm gonna so um, and in my meds it's, it's a little bit le- more subdued but there still is the hope that the medication's gonna help um, so yeah how shocking right the revelation that we are speaking other people's scripts and that they're true to us right that we experience them, them deeply but that they're not individual yeah which I think is such a revelation in these pieces No, but I think it's, I- it's precisely at home that Dan's point about the chorus comes, yeah. comes back because I- at home we may feel like there's, we're invasively you know, eavesdropping or sur- spying or surveying these people, but then there must be a moment where you look at it and you realize, oh, they're just like me. They're doing... Exa- like, I'm a mirror of them, right? So I'm at home with my computer, they're at home with their computer, and we're all having this kind of very asynchronous, mediated commu- communication.
2: So you- I know what you're up to. Um,
1: yeah, exactly, like, I think that's, I, and, but I wanna return to this question of, of listening and ethics, is that we can certainly say, yes, she has shaped these and made what she wants out of them, but I, um, I'm very impressed by, and this is why I really try to develop this idea of an ethics of listening. I'm really impressed by her ethical position. She, she contacts everyone whose video she uses. She um, sends them the final, links to the final versions and asks them if they want to be in them or if they feel uncomfortable. So I think a lot of people, through found footage practices, use all sorts of other people's images and do it in ways that have you know, a range of ethical positions. But I think it's very rare that you find someone who actually tries to, not only credits the person, but tries to send it back to them and see if they, you know, agree to be in it. And, um, and she's gone on in, as a response to this work to uh, think about how to represent people who do not have computers and who are not vlogging. So she's started a work on homeless people in California that involves providing them with cameras and computers so that they can vlog, so that she can make the project. So I think, yeah, even doing this work has kind of inspired her to be even more ethical about questions of representation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have been following the controversy around, Um, there was a film made, I haven't seen it, its name escapes me, but it's about, it's maybe called Of the North, it's about Inuit, and it's made entirely of YouTube clips that the filmmaker, who's a European-Canadian from Montreal, made about the North. And there's been a huge amount of pushback from people who are pictured in the video uh, from Tanya Tagak, whose music was used without her permission. And so what he's choosing to do with the video instead of um, pull it or cut out the sections that people have resisted is he's just putting in black leader every time somebody asks him or demands that he take out their representation. So what he's now circulating is a feature film that's entirely black leader because everything has been taken out and is silent as a kind of act of protest against the censorship that he feels he's experiencing. Um, But I think that's a great example, which had he started out the project more ethically, he wouldn't have been in the position he's in now. And actually the way he's responding to it kind of just demonstrates his own lack of respect for for the images that he's using, right? I mean, I'm just uh, kind of extrapolating out from work no, like, yeah. you know, Jody Dean's work on communicative capitalism that will just yeah. reduce anything that's happening online to just unwitting yeah. participation in digital economy. Yeah, what's to be gained? Uh, I mean, it's a real question. Yeah. Emphasize. What's to be gained by calling it that? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what else is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to shut down. Yeah. And that's what I liked about um, about how... Um, Krakauer's work was discussed around um, certain things that cannot be properly theorized or that slip between the mesh. So, yes, you can put a big theory around this and just call this digital capitalism. But then, what are you missing? What are you missing in in in, uh, in doing that? In thinking about it that way, and I and I really respect. I think although she has a very solid critique of capitalism, she's not simply just dismissing this form of expression as false consciousness or useless or just part of digital economy yeah it is yeah thanks I would have to think through it more, but Ratcliffe is talking about eavesdropping in terms of people who are being marginalized out of various situations, so it's the only way to participate, right, is to kind of listen in, but also that what's happening over there might be happening amongst the group that you're not part of, so it's a way of kind of finding out about things that you're not part of, so it is about marginalization and it is about that spatial relation of being outside. and it is devalued and it is criticized. And I did wonder about, it is difficult to kind of elevate it as a kind of ethical obligation or something like that. I don't think I'm trying to say that, but I am interested in, um, I guess, some of the utopian elements to this work that are about listening across. And even if it's um, as adults looking in on what kids are doing online, right? There's a kind of illegitimacy to it on some level, like, you shouldn't be looking at it or it's not for you but if you see it more as something that you should look at that you sh- that you that you should develop some response to and the response shouldn't just be this sucks or when i was that age that's not what i was doing or something like that right like it would be to go beyond yourself to try to if not be in the other's position at least to try to understand it in in some kind of respectful way so So yeah, I I would want to think more about eavesdropping as a kind of imperative, but I just, I like the idea of listening, not always being in a purposive kind of communicative encounter, but that it could be something that's happening off to the side and that maybe you need that peripheral kind of engagement as well. And if there's a boundary between eavesdropping and surveillance. Yeah, right. Yeah, some are quite young. uh, Yeah, they weren't that young, but there's definitely yeah Mm preteens in there for sure. And so it is a it is an ethical question, but it's also like it's out there. They're putting it out there, or their family is putting it out there. So it's out there, and it is also the way. um, And I think Jody Dean is really good on that in terms of in her book on vlogs or blogs which is that people, especially kids, think that they are exposing themselves without truly exposing themselves. Like, it will be a safe way to somehow publicize myself just to the people I want. But that it also needs to be recognized, and I think in this work is being recognized, like, that everyone can see this and that it is published. And, and so, therefore, it is part of the general kind of public discourse. And, and so... There are some, sorry, some of these actually, un- especially under some that are kids, there are actually little um, text boxes that say this video has subsequently been taken down by, by user. So then it does raise that slight discomfort. Like, did they not want it? But I, I do believe that she contacted everyone. No, this is coming from these feminist studies of rhetoric, right? Yeah. No, she doesn't talk about what other people's motivations are. She's just trying to kind of forge her own method with them. But yeah, I mean, surveillance, voyeurism, exhibitionism, there's all sorts of things going on here, and there's all sorts of ways of framing it. Um, But I think what I'm interested in with her work is that she's kind of trying to move beyond some of the ways that we usually frame it Mm -hmm. into this other thing, which is almost like this political potential. Yeah, but you could certainly bring in all those questions. Yeah. There's probably, a, sorry, yeah. probably also
3: multiple cities of intentions. Always. I mean, a person mm-hmm. can record a video like that and have both, you know, 10% um, you know, kind of desire for exhibition, I mean, but
1: also, like, want to be heard in some kind of political way and some kind of human way, too. Oh, yeah. So I, I like the bringing out of multiplicities and how that is also reflected back from what they should put back together. Right, like, people may be quite contradictory to themselves. Absolutely. Hey, I know I am. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if there's any other questions. I want to thank you all for sitting in this extremely warm room and for coming tonight. And thanks for Dan and Am for inviting me again. Thanks. Thanks very much.